Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is SiriusXM, Progress After Dark, Channel 127. I'm John Fugelsang. Hi, guys. Hope you had a great Tuesday. Gen X was trending all day. Gen X doesn't care. Uh, I'm coming to you live from Los Angeles. I'm out here to pitch my brand new series. Uh, it's called Comedians Trying to Enter Restaurants with James Corden and Alan Dershowitz. I'm very excited to pitch this. I feel really good about this and the Bill Murray light romantic comedy I came out here to pitch. And for the next three hours, we're going to be coming to you live here on Channel 127. Our number is uh, 866-997-4748. That's 866-997-GRIT. Our executive producer, Chris Hauselt, joins us as he does from the great state of South Carolina. Associate producer, Thea Harper, seriously, the grown-up in the room, is keeping this runaway train on the track from the Brooklyn Bureau, and we are taking your calls all night. We have a great show. There's a lot to get to in the news today. Let's unwind. There's so much to cover. We have a great show tonight. I'm really excited to welcome uh, Natasha Lance Rogoff to the show. She's an award-winning TV producer and is been doing TV for decades, but she's best known uh, in some circles as being executive producer of the Sesame Street franchise that aired in Russia shortly after the fall of the Iron Curtain. It's called Ulitsa Sesame, and uh, she also produced Plaza Sesamo, Sesame Street in Mexico. But she has a new book out about her time in Russia called Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected, crazy, true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. And it's actually a very gripping and hilarious and heartbreaking story about, well, the promise of a post-Soviet Russia and then the very, very real obstacles they were up against culturally and politically and governmentally. It's totally fascinating, and it really sets the stage in the power struggle that took place where ultimately Vladimir Putin went on to dismantle most of what Mikhail Gorbachev had achieved. Totally, totally fascinating. And it's Sesame Street, too. And, of course, all night long, we're taking your calls at 866-997-GRIT. Thank you to everyone who came out last night to uh, the Comedy Store on Sunset Boulevard. It was so nice to be back in an L.A. comedy club again. Oh, my God, it's been so long. We had a great room, great comics, great crowd. Thank you guys for hanging out after the show and saying hi. The big show is this weekend in Los Angeles. Beverly Hills, to be exact, at the Saban Theater, which is on La Cienega in Wilshire. It's a great space. That will be the final show this year of Stephanie Miller's sexy, liberal, Save Democracy comedy tour. That's what it's been called this year. It's going to be a great show. Stephanie Miller, Hal Sparks, me, Frangela. Our special guests include Rob Reiner and Glenn Kirshner. And if you can't make it to the L.A. area, you can see the whole thing live streaming. Just go to sexyliberal.com to buy your digital ticket at sexyliberal.com. It's going to be just the best kind of political comedy party our nervous, beaten-up souls need. Only 22 days, folks. 22 days to get 21 days. We're three weeks from today, right? Three weeks from today, folks, (laughs) 
And after that, we're going to do a lot more pop culture on this show for a couple of weeks while we all lick our soul wounds from this bruising midterm. Let's get into it. Also, if you liked our recent interview, uh, say with uh, Jennifer Tilly, boy, how amazing is she? Or, you know, the, the specials we just did with Ken Burns or John Boyega, you can hear all of that Sirius XM on demand, Sirius XM's app or the John Fugelsang podcast. I understand for the first time we, we did an interview with a big famous movie director, Paul Feig made, you know, bridesmaids and the new Ghostbusters, and uh, well, apparently that one that one's already out on the podcast. It hasn't even aired on the show yet, so we're ahead of ourselves. Lots of great stuff still coming down the pike, and uh, lots of guests coming up that we're... I think Tim Robbins is doing the show next week, and a few other big names we are hoping to announce very, very soon. Let's get into it. I want to begin the show with a funeral, and then I want to report a murder. In that order, I think. I know the murder might be more urgent, but the, the, guy's, the guy's been laid waste to it. doesn't make a difference. Let's have a funeral first. Brothers and sisters, here lies the Durham probe. <laughs> we are gathered here today to lay to rest a political misdirect, a treacherous piece of miscreant theater designed to keep the rubes rubing. Of course, I'm talking about special counsel John Durham, who was picked by former Attorney General Bill Barr in 2019 to take your taxpayer dollars and go through an extensive campaign of absolute bullshit to make it look like they were doing something and smear law enforcement. That's all the Durham probe, which our right-wing friends talk about a lot. Have you spent time in any right-wing chat rooms? Do you ever go there? Yeah, I mean, you're nice people. You got better things to do on a Friday night. You don't go to those parts of town. But if you do, if you ever spend time in the comment section of any right-wing place, you in the last three years have heard a lot about the Durham probe. Oh, the fake Russia hoax. Oh, my God. They took a completely innocent Donald Trump and they tried to smear him and somehow alleged that even though his second campaign manager was fired because of his shady contacts with Russia, even though his own sons say that most of their income comes from Russia, they tried to suggest that Donald Trump was somehow involved with Russia. And uh, there were 10 counts of obstruction of justice. No one cared. Democrats didn't push it. So that means it was all a hoax. So they put in John Durham. Bill Barr grabbed him and said, hey, go in there and make the FBI look bad. That was the entire purpose of the probe, was to sow doubt in the investigation of Robert Mueller, which no one ever acted on anyway. And in the process, they've never actually denied any of the 10 counts of obstruction of justice. They haven't had to. The Democrats let them off the hook. The probe, however, is done. And we gather today to watch it lowered into the ground. Igor Dushenko, Danchenko, the analyst who gave much of the research for what's called the Steele dossier, was found not guilty of lying to the FBI. This whole thing was Durham wanting to prove that the Russia investigation was this big global conspiracy. And Trump said for years, Durham would uncover, in his words, the crime of the century inside U.S. law enforcement. Because you know what? <laughs> if you can't beat him on the steps of the Capitol, try to beat him do a hoax investigation. And they wanted to go after the intel agencies that investigated all of his campaign's links to Russia. Now, of course, Robert Mueller could have followed the money. We all could have learned a lot about how real estate in New York is used to launder foreign money, but that was something that uh, our country didn't want to do. Now, so far, nobody charged by the special counsel has gone to prison. Only one government employee has pled guilty to a criminal offense, and we'll never see a day in jail. It was a misdemeanor. In both of these trials this year, Durham argued that people lied to the FBI agents, not, not that the FBI corruptly targeted Trump. That was the whole purpose, right? We're going to go after law enforcement. Heads are going to roll. Durham knew his job was to make it look like he was doing something. This is like Benghazi, folks. They don't actually care. And once they're out of office, they really don't care. They just want to have the illusion that something has been done wrong to Fox viewers, so Fox viewers will feel like the Republican Party is doing something for them. You know, like stopping fully grown men from competing in teenage girls' sports. Urgent shit, I realize. Um, Igor Dachenko is a private researcher. He was the main source behind the Steele dossier that alleged these ties between Trump's campaign in 2016 and the Kremlin. And he's been completely acquitted on all charges of lying to the FBI. Again, He's been doing this investigation for three and a half years, and he's now lost both cases, both cases. They've said forever that you will see charges against all the top Obama era intel officials. It'll validate all the allegations that the whole Russia investigation we all live through is nothing but a witch hunt. 
<laughs> Durham's a longtime federal prosecutor. He was U.S. attorney in Connecticut when Trump was president, and he personally argued this case for the government against Mr. Janchenko. He said that Danchenko misled the FBI officials way back in 2017 about his sources. Okay, that's the case. Trump said they tried to frame him. The FBI tried to frame him and they were going after the FBI. His own special counsel just said, oh, no, uh, actually, someone lied to the FBI and we just need someone's head on a stick. The agency determined the researcher was the unnamed person behind some of the most crazy allegations about Trump in the Steele dossier. So the jury deliberated for about nine hours. Over all of two days, one juror said that there were no holdouts and the jurors were pretty unanimous in how they viewed the case. The grand jury that the special counsel was using in Alexandria, Virginia, is done. It is inactive. The Durham investigation has been a complete bust. It's been a complete disaster. It was never actually meant to do anything. It was only meant to give Trump supporters and Fox News viewers the sense that somehow... Their dear leader had been wronged and revenge was going to happen. Durham himself seems to have known his inenviable job and has just shown up and tried to prosecute anybody he can and run out the clock. This is an amazing story because it's a lesson in what happens when your Justice Department is weaponized to do the personal bidding of a corrupt president. That's what it was. And it's a great thrill to see it peter out this limply. He's done. His grand jury's done. And in over several years, all he ever got was one guilty plea from a low-level FBI agent who didn't serve a day in jail. This is a huge disappointment for the conservative news outlets that covered this thing. Oh, my God. Do you ever watch Hannity or Tucker? This guy was going to take down giants. Instead, this investigation, if it is remembered at all, will go down in history as one of the most atrocious abuses of prosecutorial power in the history of crass political revenge. Juries, once again, have stood up and led. <laughs> the feds win 95% of their cases. This guy got two acquittals in trial. And by the way, to Durham's credit, he went out playing the hits. Um, he used his closing remarks to defend himself, told the jury his team spent a considerable period of time away from their families to figure out why the Russia investigation began after Mueller, who he said was a patriotic American, concluded, in his words, there was no evidence of collusion here or conspiracy. Collusion's not a crime, friends. And Robert Mueller kept saying that. They were never investigating Donald Trump for collusion. But Donald Trump realized, I just say there was no collusion, and people who don't know anything will think that is a crime that I'm innocent of. If Trump had said, I did not use the Death Star to destroy Alderaan, it would have been exactly the same. Mueller's report said that his office could not establish any conspiracy between the campaign and Russia, but it said a statement that the investigation did not establish particular facts does not mean there was no evidence of those facts. And the report showed many links between Trump's campaign officials like Manafort and the Kremlin. And it talked about how the campaign was very eager to take any help they could take from Putin. Why? Because they're still doing it. He's still asking Putin for help. You know how much this cost taxpayers? Almost $6 million. The Mueller investigation paid for itself two times over with asset forfeiture. Yeah, the federal treasury made money off of Mueller. Now the Durham probe flies away to join Hillary's emails, Benghazi, and Obama's birth certificate on the island of misfit smears. Rest in peace. That's, well, <laughs> that's our funeral. Now, really quickly, I'd like to report a murder. Uh, it happened in Florida. The suspect was a woman, uh, a, a black woman. The victim was a, uh, a Cuban-American male. Uh, this is Val Demings destroying Marco Rubio in their debate tonight. Now, now listen, I'm, we're going to play some clips from this. Val Demings was one of the prosecutors in the first Trump impeachment, and I've been a big fan of hers for ages. I, I thought Joe Biden should have picked her to be his VP. Think about it. Nothing against Kamala. She's great. But former chief of police from Orlando, if you care about winning Florida Dems, this is who you want. Let's play some cuts really quick. Marco Rubio, I think, just thought he was going to slide in there on charm and quoting Bible scriptures he doesn't actually mean. Here's Val Demings completely letting Rubio have it on the subject of guns. The families of victims of gun violence just heard that, and they're asking themselves, what in the hell did he just say? Senator, you used the, the Pulse nightclub shooting as your inspiration to run again for the Senate in 2016. Pulse is in my district. 
And yet, you've done nothing, nothing to help address gun violence and get dangerous weapons out of the hands of dangerous people. Florida, after Parkland, after you made promises that you had no intentions on keeping to the parents of Parkland, Florida passed legislation raising the age to have an assault weapon, passed red flag laws that we've seen 7,000 plus instances where they've been used now. To, our primary responsibility is the safety of Floridians. And Senator, 24 years in elected office and you have not yet risen to that occasion. And then when oh. asked about it, you say something that makes no sense. Oh, oh, it's beautiful. Are you, do you like that? Maybe you want to pour a glass of wine, maybe light some candles to listen to more of this. Just get the lighting in your room really good. Get comfortable. If you want to pause me and get in a warm bath, I understand. Here's Val Demings clobbering what's left of Marco Rubio on abortion access. Senator, how gullible do you really think Florida voters are? Number one, you have been clear that you support no exceptions, even including rape and incest. Now, as a police detective who investigated cases of rape and incest, no, Senator, I don't think it's okay for a 10-year-old girl to be raped and have to carry the seed of her rapist. No, I don't think it's okay for you to make decisions for women and girls. As a senator, I think those decisions are made between the woman, her family, her daughter, and her faith. And to sit over, or to stand over there and say that I support, don't support abortions up to the time of birth is just a lie. But to help protect the life of the mother, which you looked at that like it was just, well, kind of a, well, that's kind of a side issue. <laughs> Senator, you know that you have said you don't support any Okay, um, it gets better than that. She savaged him. I mean, honestly, I, I, think, I think Marco Rubio really, really thought he'd just slide in there. And maybe he's well-funded enough, this doesn't matter. But boy, howdy, Val Demings let him have it. I, I, I got to play some more. Chris, are you up for more? Um, listen, you might want to turn, if you have children there, turn their faces away from the radio because it, it starts to get brutal here. This is Val Demings, again, on the subject of firearms with Marco Rubio, who, again, you have to remember the entire Republican playbook right now for election 2022. It's to say the greatest problem in the world is violent crime and, and we've got to make sure AR-15s are easily available to criminals. Val Demings on guns. How long will you watch people being gunned down in first grade, fourth grade, high school, college, church, synagogue, a grocery store, a movie theater, a mall, and a nightclub, Congresswoman. and do nothing? And finally, we have to let the carnage stop. This is, uh, she ends him right here. Uh, he, here. Here lies Marco. She's been in Congress for over half a decade. She's never passed a bill, not PPP, not anything, not a single bill she's passed has ever become law. I'm proud of the fact That's we saved true. millions of jobs. I'm proud of the fact we did it in a bipartisan way. That's not true. I know the senator, look, and, and I'm really disappointed in you, Marco Rubio, because I think there was a time when you did not lie in order to win. I don't know what happened to you. You know that is not true. My first term in the United States House, I passed legislation to help law enforcement officers with mental health programs. Your first term in the Senate, you voted to turn Medicare into, basically to abolish it, and then turn it into an underfunded voucher program. And then you gave the biggest tax break to the richest of the rich and said you'd pay for it with cuts to Social Security and Medicare. We gotta hit a break when we return. The great Natasha Lance Rogoff on Muppets in Moscow. I've been so looking forward to this conversation. We'll be right back. Hi there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And welcome back to SiriusXM Progress. We are at 866-997-4748. Right now, I'm so pleased to welcome this next guest. When you think about Sesame Street going overseas, you think about, well, how it's managed to touch the lives of children from Mexico to South Africa to Northern Ireland to India. There have been so many co-productions of Sesame Street that are always tailored to whatever national audience is being targeted. And it's become a global institution of a way to introduce children into the world of learning, helping young people become smarter, stronger, and kinder, and showing them that they can become anything they want. And then there's Russia. Not just Russia, but Russia right after the fall of communism, when it was in political limbo, when we didn't know if it would continue to be the Gorbachev nation, long before we knew it would be the Putin nation that dismantled so much that Gorbachev achieved. It was a very unstable time in Russia, in its economy, in its military, in its government, to say nothing of trying to do a show for the Muppets. And it might have even been a, a deathly career move. Well, Natasha Lance Rogoff is an award-winning TV producer. She's uh, done many, many shows. And she's, of course, done uh, Plaza Sesamo, which is Sesame Street in Mexico. At a young age, she really had a love for Russian literature and culture, which led directly to her being the EP of Ulitsa Sesam. I hope I'm saying that right. Sesame Street in Russia. And now in her new book, Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected crazy true story of making Sesame Street in Russia, she brings a story that includes assassinations and bombings and the military taking over her own production office, and yet they still manage to get a wonderful show for children on the air. It's a great pleasure to welcome Natasha Lance-Rogoff to SiriusXM. Hello. Hello. Great to be here. Hi, John. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. I I have been so looking forward to this conversation because uh, it just seems like you were in the right place at the right time to witness an incredible time in history when no one knew if the country would survive, much less your TV show. Um, I, I, I have to begin by asking, um, I guess the most basic question is, that when did you first fall in love with Russian culture? I want to get to that before I get into how you got this job. I, I uh, was... I was always in, intrigued with this country. My grandfather left uh, Belarusia in 1912, and um, you know he had a very different sensibility than my own parents, who didn't speak a word of Russian. And then when I started reading Russian literature in in college, I in in high school first, I thought, oh, this is this is an you know this is a really weird culture. It's um, very, the, the literature was so abstract and, um, you know, kind of magical things happening, but the conversations were soulful, but also cruel. And somehow it reflected reality more, at least how I saw it, you know, how I, I was kind of obsessed with uh, looking at um, history and dictatorships and fascinated with people who um, took incredible risks and to, you know, like uh, people, resistors in the right. World War II. And right. this all led to fascination with, with communism as well. And, um, and then in college, I studied Russian and Chinese history. Amazing. So it just persisted. You, you live there as an exchange student as well. <laughs> yeah, I moved there in, in 1982 and uh, to study Russian in Leningrad, now called St. Petersburg. Absolutely beautiful city. I mean, uh, to, to just even just walk around in that, you just were in a society that had no advertising at all. It was so different from the United States in the 1980s. And people didn't have, you know, money, the, the role of money had a different different function in the society because there were no markets. That's right. So um, I... I ended up meeting a lot of underground artists who had, um, you know, couldn't, couldn't musicians who couldn't 
play music and they couldn't sell their music and they couldn't record their music because there was one recording studio which was run by the state and um uh i just i i I have to say i found it utterly fascinating the place was so full of contradictions and yet everywhere i went there were you know there weren't that many westerners at that time uh and certainly not more than i think there were 30 americans in Leningrad and 30 in Moscow as part of the, uh, you know, international exchange programs. Right. And Russians would stop me on the street and, and always say, you know, of course, it's better here where we live, right? <laughs> you were very ahead of your time, though, in, in many ways. I know you, in the early 80s, you wrote a piece for the San Francisco Chronicle about gay life in the Soviet Union. And, and you also married a gay friend to help him escape persecution by the Russian government. It seems like you had the right mixture of uh, social awareness and just um, kindness and empathy to make you the perfect person to take on an impossible TV job. <laughs> well, I don't know about that when I, I mean, that decision, uh, marrying my friend cost me a job at the State Department many years later because... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was it was a very idealistic thing to do. And at the time when I was I think I was 22, uh, I really didn't think I had a choice. You know, it was sort of like this is terrible. You know, I was in that community and had many friends who were um, essentially blackmailed by the uh, KGB at the time right. to report on their friends. And, um, you know, a lot of the men that I knew were married and they had children because, you know, everybody needed a cover, too. But it was it was horrible. It was horrible. And um, but, but I you know, if 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 my own child decided to do something like that, which is basically illegal, you know, a fictitious marriage, I would probably advise my daughter not to do it. So I do I do understand <laughs> the impetus for doing it, but I would say, and uh, as as an adult, you know, now that maybe it wasn't the most mature way of trying to help. I disagree. I disagree. I love it. I, I think I, I I want them. I said to you in the break, I can't wait for them to make the movie about you trying to make Sesame Street in Russia. But I want to see a movie about this as well, because I had other friends who, who did the same thing. But, you know, you, you tell the story in your book about at the FBI headquarters when you were interviewing and you overheard the agent talking about you to a colleague saying, you know, in a thick southern oh, drawl, yeah. there was no way you were ever going to work for the government of the United States. Yeah, no, that was that was great. I mean, I went to the bathroom. I came back. I was having this was in uh, silver, uh, wherever the the security. Co- you know, these are all FBI agents. They're former, right. they're retired FBI agents. And I think it was during the Reagan era. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so I was doing you know, Crystal City. That's what it's called in Virginia. And I just stepped in. I just before I came into the room, and I just couldn't believe what they said. You know, they go uh, this. You know, I can't believe this woman wants to work for the government of the United States of America. And the other guy goes, why is that? And he goes, she did something that's a no-no. And the other guy goes, oh, yeah, what? So he goes, commies and queers. Commies and queers. Like <laughs> so I was just like, oh, well, no, no clearance. <laughs> nope. I guess I won't be working for the State Department. Oh, how both of these societies have changed in the years. So so they denied your clearance and you, you went back to Moscow and you were working as a TV producer. And then in 93, you got the call from Sesame Workshop to make, am I saying it right? Ulitsa Sesame? Yeah, Ulitsa. Ulitsa, Ulitsa. Sesame, which just means uh, Sesame Street in Russia, in Russia. Did you, did you have any hesitations about um, moving into the field of Slavic Muppets at the time? <laughs> Well, the I mean, I had been living in uh, the Soviet Union for 10 years already and making films. And the film that I had just finished had predicted the coup of August 1991 when the Soviet Union uh, fell. And two Sesame Street executives came to the screening of that uh, that film in New York City and asked me and they said, uh, could you uh, help us make Sesame Street? And I just looked at them and I was like, did you just watch my film? I mean, I had embedded with conservative fascists, you know, who hate capitalism. And, you know, these are these are like rallies where some people would often get hurt. And right. I, I was like, I really I don't know anything about children's television. And actually, I don't really know anything about children. 
I was single, <laughs> had no children. My sister had th- had three, two kids then. And uh, I just, they said, oh, yeah, but we've been trying for a while. And, you know, um, they had, uh, Senator Biden had um, spearheaded congressional support for a yes. Russian version of Sesame Street. It, they had bipartisan support. And, you know, it seemed like uh, it could happen. And it was a great idea. But, you know, the idea that I, I mean, when he told me this, I was like thinking the Muppets, they're so lighthearted and fun and thinking about Russian comedy as I knew it. I just thought, I don't know. I can't imagine, you know, this actually working in this society with this, (laughs) with their history and everything else. Well, so, there, there's there's this great yeah. story in the book when the the first design for a, a Russian Muppet was a, an, an old Russian man with a beard who would just be there to tell children how to behave in the new Russia. And you tried to say to the producers, how about making the, the character a child so children can relate to it like Elmo here? And it was not really well received, was it? No, no. But I I mean, it's very interesting because what they were trying to do is they were they were um they were trying to relate to take a puppet that would come out of their own folklore and so they selected this character named domovoy who is a a spirit of nature who protects the hearth and the home so the idea was was really beautiful but then when they went to to make the drawings and all the uh producers were sitting around with somebody they were saying yes add this do this and the end result, it looked like this, like, small man with, you know, with um, a white hair or flashing eyes. He looked really scary. And, you know, to <laughs> me, I was like, he either looks like Father Frost or a rabbi. <laughs> so, I was like, they put they put a little cap on him, too, like a yarmulke. And and I just thought, then, then I asked them, I said, well, what what is his personality? What's he like? And. You know, one of the women who who was the first head writer uh, said, well, he uh, he tells children how to behave. And, (laughs) you know, this is this is also out of their their education because it's quite a a rigid system compared to what was the American education at that time. Yes. And of course, it was a brand new country uh, as well. And like the best of children's television workshop, you worked with educators to try to teach about this new society. There's a great piece in the book about how you met at this monastery in Moscow with about 40 teachers from around the, the, the former Soviet Union. And it seems like no one trying to figure out how to teach children about the society was all that sure yet what the new society was. That was a that was, I think, a pivotal moment for the co-production and in any in every single Sesame Street International co-production the the cornerstone is the curriculum seminar where you bring together educators and the creative team mm. in order to come up with what what are you going what is this show going to teach what values and you know the the goal here was to to teach uh, skills and values that um children needed in order to thrive in a new open society. Of course. Of course. And of course, what does that mean in in this <laughs> in this country? You know, how do you define that? And you know, as we were throwing around ideas, um I I raised my hand and I said, well what about showing children um running a lemonade stand? That's you know I that love this that part. would teach yes. counting and team teamwork. Um, you know, I wasn't thinking about the other aspects, which is, you know, they 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 learn how to uh, they learn um, how to communicate as, you know, people selling things and all this. And uh, the they, uh, the group uh, uh, pretty much collective collectively was horrified and said, you know, you can't you can't have children selling things on the street. Only criminals do that. Oh. And I thought. <laughs> Okay, well, I I understand where they're coming from, because up until three years ago, anybody selling anything on the street, you know, was a crime because it's called speculation and they'd be put in prison. And I actually had made a film with a furniture maker who was put in prison for several years 
because he was selling furniture and it was illegal. It's just called speculation because he was making a profit and it wasn't produced by the state. And that's what capital, that's what communism was. It was state, uh, you know, state uh, um, market, not state market, but state, state economy, essentially. Um, But there were, there were so many aspects of the, the curriculum seminar that were really surprising to me. And, you know, another one was when we uh, started talking about um, inclusivity and how are we going to integrate um, children with disabilities. With disabilities, yes. Yeah, and so we showed this um, clip uh, from the American Sesame Street show of a little boy in a wheelchair, and he's um, he's uh, there's a, a really upbeat song in the background where he's singing, me and my chair, we go everywhere. And it's a very popular um, segment in Sesame Street. We sh- we show that, and the reaction is absolutely not what I expected. So one guy uh, stands up and says, "You can't show children in wheelchairs. It's shameful. You can't show them on television." And um, and then. Uh, I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is this is this is really just not 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 that. I mean, these are enlightened educators. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I really thought maybe they're not ready for Sesame Street. And then um, this other woman says, "You don't understand, you know, to me as an American, but there are all these children who are um, uh, trapped in their beds, and they'll never ever get a wheelchair." And at this time, the country was very poor. Uh, you know, the, the many, many teachers hadn't been paid in months. The army hadn't even been paid. Um, nobody knew what was going to happen next. You know, would right. the new government stay there or not? And um, she said, you know, these children will never get a wheelchair. And if they see children with wheelchairs on television, they'll just feel sad because they'll oh. never have one. So. Uh- yeah. So yeah. that was, you know, anyway, that was the, you know, these were, uh, uh, you know, really moving stories. And then eventually there was a woman who spoke about uh, children that she she works with in an area uh, that stretches from Bolga to Siberia. And she just says, look, you know, these children long to play with and she uses the word ninormalnya, which means not normal children. You know, so the not normal children long to play with normal children. And that was shocking right. for me to hear these terms. But everybody was using that terminology to describe disabled children. No, and eventually, the, just to, to, to end the story, but they, she talks about, uh, you know, I urge you to create stories where they play together and are seen as value, a valuable part of society. And and this moved the entire room to the point where they accepted this idea and then, uh, you know, decided to uh, write these scenarios. There, were, uh, there are so many moving stories like that in the book. And, of course, the show premiered and it was a hit. And um, you you ran and 52 half-hour episodes that you produced over two years. But I'd be most remiss with our remaining time if I didn't talk about the fact that this was an incredibly volatile time in Russia. And several heads of Russian TV, including your friend, Mr. Listiev, uh, were assassinated at the time. I, 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 I just can't imagine what that must have been like for you just trying to put on a children's show while murder was falling all around you. It felt often it felt a little too close for comfort. You know, it was uh, I mean, Russia is a very volatile and uh, violent place, you know, traditionally in terms of, you know, people getting poisoned, getting pushed out of windows. You know, these things happen, but it happened at an accelerated pace after the fall of the Soviet Union as well. And there were you know, part of it was just how lawless it had to, it had become because the right. center had fallen. Right. Um, so I, that was very, uh, you know, um, to, to work with people, depend on them for advice, uh, to have your, your broadcast partners who are going to air the show suddenly be assassinated. 
I mean, it was it was a tragedy, especially Licio for the entire country, because he was a great man and he was trying to change the country, you know, bring a free press to the country, uh, um, address corruption in the TV industry. And so many men like him were uh, were um, assassinated, uh, which is how we got to this place we are now, because exactly. the, the, so many people were killed. Well, uh, on, on that note, this is the part where I ask you and put you on the spot and ask if we can get you back for a part two on this interview, because we've only begun to scratch the surface on this incredible book. It's gripping. I can't wait to see who plays you in the movie. Can we can we try to get you back to go even deeper into the book? Absolutely. Yeah, the, I love talking about this. And I, I feel like it's, you know, incredibly important for us to look at the deeper values in the society because if we don't understand this country and they have nuclear weapons we have to understand you know as 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 heartbreaking as it is what's going on you know we have to figure out a way to live in the same world and to have peace in ukraine exactly and you know around the world well, I, I'd love to come back and go even deeper and talk a bit about what's happening right now and how it relates to your experience then. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I love this book. I love that it exists. I really hope they turned it into a movie. Uh, it is Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected, crazy, true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. Ms. Rogoff, what's the best way for our listeners to keep up with you and follow your work? I suppose on um, uh, Twitter or, you know, I, I'm available on the web. Okay. That's at Lance Rogoff. There's a lot of information out there uh, that I have a website, too, which is uh, just my name, which is NatashaLanceRogoff.com. I look forward to continuing this next time we get you in studio. Thank you so much for joining us. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with your calls. This is SiriusXM. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I want to go to Elizabeth in L.A. who's been on hold. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, John. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I know you are. Thou art huge (laughs) and legendary and not just in your own mind. Thank you for using the word umbrage correctly, sir. Oh, isn't it a good word? I mean, America, we don't talk about America's umbrage addiction. And again, it's one of the things that that unites all of us. Yeah, uh, I have been accused of carrying a bit of umbrage at times. I'm a native Washingtonian, as you know, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't help but agree with Mr. Pasternak about politics and teams being irrelevant anymore. I think teams, blue, right, red, libertarian, the whole lot, I think it's uh, out of fashion. And I think the way to unite people really is to look at the specific topics. For example, Democrats and Republicans can agree that uh, the Capitol is sacred ground to our body of politic and should be protected at all costs. Sure. Women's rights. I think we can all agree that women have equality, but taking it into a two-party or more uh, perspective weakens the argument because everyone wants to put their own framework on it. Mm. Um, so I'm doing a lot of anger management. I understand. <laughs> I'm looking at the media and I'm, I'm recalling that Obama legalized propaganda 
And what? there is a lot what, what of... Is that? Whoa, 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 you lost me. What does that mean, legalized propaganda? Propaganda has been legal he, since... He, 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 he legalized the use of propaganda on the American citizens. Thank you for... I'm dro- sorry, propaganda has been used on the... Propaganda has been used on the American citizens since before we had a revolution. Every, no, every... We, had, we had an agreement in World War II that we wouldn't use propaganda on our own citizens, and it was removed when Obama was in office. What, how, how specific? No, but I'm so sorry. Really every difficult. every American government, every political party has used propaganda on its citizens. In what sense did Obama start a trend? Well, it, I, I will I will pull up the specific motion that he made and signed into order for you to refresh your memory. Okay, um, sure. And I agree with you that it's a very difficult line, and propaganda is used on citizens all the time. But this incendiary rage that people are building up really needs to be de-escalated in order for us to remain civilized and nonviolent. Yes. Um, I know that anger sells things, but so does laughter. And I think that the guests that you just had on your show is exactly the message that America is after. I'm done with division. I'm done with anger. I want rock and roll politics. I want to join you in solidarity in defending Nickelback. <laughs> I'm not defending. No, no, again. no. I was I was defending Nickelback in theory. I am sw- <laughs> when it comes to Nickelback, Donnie. I am Switzerland. Okay, I have no reason to hate them. I have no. There, I find there's other groups that are much more objectionable. I, I, I object you know, to how trendy hating Nickelback is. That it makes it a lazy target to me. If I can't dance, it's not my revolution, and I just think a lot more dancing. Um, <laughs> and a lot less umbrage would be the way to go. Well, let me let me uh, just let me just slip one thing into your mind. Let me, that comes with these current what the fucks. I'm with you, but let me just let me just slip one thing for you to ponder because I I agree with yeah. you about anger, but there's a difference between anger and outrage. Anger is destructive. It clouds your judgment. It makes you tired. It kills comedy. Outrage is constructive. It directs your ire. It reminds well, okay. people of why they should care, and it doesn't drain you. I, I think if you do com- political John, comedy from a place of outrage, you'll get laughs. If you do it from a place of anger, you're going to make the audience uncomfortable. Go ahead. Uh, okay. The wrathful deity in the Tibetan Buddhist traditions was always on the front lines of the, the war for enlightenment, if you want to look at it as a battle. Enlightenment versus endarkenment. And they were really mean and scary but their anger, uh, or their outrage, rather, was protective. At the same time, they look really scary doing it. Whether they're outraged or whether they're angry, we can argue the nuances. But I'd much rather see a furry guinea pig running for president um, <laughs> than a tooth-gnashing, claw-talon-empowered yes. uh, monster uh, who's outraged. And I think, you know... I but outrage, outrage is not the same as anger, Bar- uh, you know, Barack Obama. Uh, like, but, but, but every president gets elected, it runs on a form of outrage. I mean, Joe Biden did it. He just didn't do it, go to anger. Bill Clinton ran on outrage, so, not we're anger. We're so politically entrenched in military jargon um, and, uh, and the idea that everything has to be a fight. That it's yes, we've got to stand down on that. Time. I agree. We've got to stand down. It's going to take a long time to de-escalate Americans and look at language that isn't necessarily uh, bent toward conflict. It's bent yeah. toward resolution. But then people are like, oh, wow, no, I'm not angry. What am I going to do? I don't know anyone like that. I don't know anyone like that. I, I think anger has a purpose, but at some point, especially in politics, people just treat anger like it's a battery, and it's not good for discourse, it's not good for debate, and it's not good for anybody's mental health. I'm a, like I said, well, I'm a big fan. you have to recharge fan. pretty quickly. you got to recharge. I'm a big fan of outrage. I stay away from anger. Anger gives you cancer. Elizabeth, thank you so I, very much. John. I appreciate it. Well, hang on. Chris is mad. Now Chris is angry. Go ahead, Chris. Well, uh, when in terms of this, I always defer to the word words of the great Los Angeles poet, Zach De La Rocha, Please. when he said, anger is a gift. Well, for their music, it was, yeah. But, depends, you know, today's, today's the anniversary of Zach De La Rocha quitting Rage Against the Machine, 22 mm. years ago today. So even he had his limits. How was that, huh? I was ready. Oh, you, you know your enemy. It's a bomb yeah. track. Okay. Yeah. 
quit 22 years ago today. Thank you, Elizabeth. Quick, quick break. We'll be right back. Oh, my God. They're already calling to talk about Elizabeth's call. We'll be right back. This is Progress. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So you can believe the polls all you want, if you want, but... It's a different story on the ground. Like every election, if there's big turnout, we'll see big results. Right now in Iowa, Jim Leach, the former House Financial Services chair, a lifelong Republican, just said he's appalled by today's GOP. He switched to Democratic and he endorsed Chuck Grassley's Democratic opponent. Chuck Grassley is running for his 78th term at the age of 437. Uh, He said he had no choice, Mr. Leach, saying Trump and the January 6th insurrection were his breaking point. And as we began the show, Marco Rubio had what's left of his ass handed to him by Val Demings. Boy, what a headline in the Miami Herald. Val Demings is just what lazy anti-abortion Marco Rubio deserves. A fearless challenger. Folks, it's not over till the day after Election Day. Keep the pressure on Thank you for keeping democracy alive. Thank you for caring about people you've never met. Thank you for making this channel special. And thank you for making me want to be a better American. We will be back tomorrow on Sirius XM Progress with Bob Seska, Professor Harvey Kay, and Keith Price. More of your calls. Keep it tuned to Sirius XM Progress all day long. We'll be right back with you tomorrow evening on 127.